Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, in our last podcast, me and Jack Howard started running down our top 10 David Fincher movies in order. He has a new movie coming out, Mank, which is his 11th movie. So in the run up to the release of Mank, we decided to order the 10 movies he's made so far. In the first podcast, we did numbers 10 to 6. In this podcast, we're doing numbers 5 to 1. If you missed the previous podcast, don't worry. It's still there. You can download it at will. Anyway, on with the show. Now, look, um, this now brings us into the top five. I think we're progressing at a at a decent pace. So my, I think we, I push think on. we should push on. Okay, so at number five, you have Zodiac. Wow. Okay, at number five, I have Gone Girl. Okay. At number four, I have Gone Girl. Okay, so we'll do that. And at number four, I have Fight Club. So. We'll do Gone Girl first. Um, you want to go first? I absolutely adore Gone Girl. I think it might be one of the best cinema experiences I've ever had. And I mean that especially in a nostalgic way now because the idea of being in a packed cinema where you can feed the energy off everybody is almost a foreign concept. That electricity that everyone had when we were watching Gone Girl for the first time was insanely high. I remember just leaning over to a friend of mine at one point I can't even remember when it was. I think it was when she comes back to the house somewhere in the second act and she's covered in the blood of... Uh, the What's his name? Um, of him, yeah. We, Doogie Hauser. What's his yeah, name? Yeah, I, I can't remember his character name, but I know exactly who you mean. Because, but, and, of course, we should say once again, sorry if you've got this far, there will be spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> when she just comes back covered in blood. I remember turning to a friend of mine and going... I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this is going to end. And just that sheer adrenaline of not knowing where something was going was just a buzz in my head. And also Fincher handling it like a pro at the top of his game. He's now made the social network. He's got that same sort of style of camera. The opening sequence, I remember immediately feeling unsettled. The credits fade in and as they're fading out, we cut to a different shot just before that they faded out. So it's got this immediately unsettling, jumpy effect to it where you Something's not quite sitting right. And then I remember watching them fall in love in these like flashbacks that they have where he's wiping sugar off her lips and things like that. And hearing that the dialogue was very clearly dubbed and being like, what's Fincher doing? Like, this feels really weird and I'm not sure if I like it. And then you find out that all of that was an act and that it wasn't really real. And I'm like, oh, of course, that's what he was doing. He was making me question it because I was going, there's something not quite right about this. And he knew that that was the effect it was going to have. 
and it did have that uncomfortable effect and then later it made complete sense i think everybody's amazing in it casting ben affleck as well in that role is again meta textually genius to do that um some guy that's kind of likable but also a bit of a sleazy bastard as well like there's something about him that there's something about that that made sense it all just works for me and it's a joy to watch i love it i loved gone girl and like i say it's just pulpy and it's silly and it knows it and finch is kind of using all of it as a comedy in some ways it's so good i think the i think the minute you cut to the shot of her in the car when it's the first it's the first version of oh it's not the version you think it is i just thought okay i'm on I'm, that's it. I'm, I'm on. Yeah. I'm on. And then, as you, because in a worse film, that would be the ending <laughs> twist. But he goes now nah, halfway through. Well, it's not even halfway. Doing. I mean, it's 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 a kind of weird. It kind of happens at a, it happens at a moment in the movie that you think it's it's gone too far to go this way, but not far enough for it to be the twist. And it, and then suddenly, <laughs> yeah, you go, yeah. What you're like? Is, it's, is this the ending sequence? Are we about to finish? It feels like. No, we've got so much more film. It's left. structurally so bizarre because it it is it is like I I I and, and people always talk about a film doing this. They say a film pulls the rug out from under your feet, and I know obviously the people will be familiar with the source. I wasn't, um, but I think even if you are, it doesn't matter because it's like watching a magician do a trick. You may know the trick, and you may even know the trick's done, but it doesn't matter. You love to watch it done, and uh, I just remember that moment going, "Oh, this is great." This is just, I'm, yeah, I'm on board. And then consistently managing to do it. So there are later moments in the film when things happen quite spectacularly in a kind of Verhoeven-esque style because there, there's a, you know, there's a lot of basic instinct in that film. I mean, I know that, that you know, people sort of shy away from, from it, mentioning basic instinct as a good thing but there is a lot of basic instinct in that film but i think that's i think that's totally right i think he wanted to just make a silly pulpy film but he's still going to make it like david fincher so it's going to be shot beautifully and it's going to be structured in a really interesting way he's going to have performances that are really earnest and taking it seriously like the characters in the movie shouldn't know that they're in a silly situation they should be reacting like this is really happening but we all know this is a silly movie like I think that's what he gets pitch perfect. Yeah, it's re- it's it's just it's just really good fun. It's really good cinema, and and I really enjoyed it. And in fact, I went back and saw it again pretty shortly after seeing it the first time, just because of how much fun it was. So you got to the bar around eleven today. Where were you before that? Just to cross that off. Well, I was home. I left at nine thirty. Got a cup of coffee, newspaper. I went to Sawyer Beach and read the news. Do you visit with anyone there? Well, I mean, I kind of go to Sawyer Beach for the solitude. So, your wife has no friends here. Is she kind of standoffish? Ivy League? Rubs people the wrong way? She's from New York. She's complicated. She's got very high standards. Type A? Well, that can make you crazy if you're not like that. You seem pretty laid back. Type B. Speaking of which, Amy's blood type. God, I don't know. I have to look it up at the house. You don't know if she has friends. You don't know what she does all day. And you don't know your wife's blood type. Sure y'all are married. I, I, maybe it's typo. Where are her folks? New York? Yeah. Can they get here in time for this press conference tomorrow? Tomorrow? I, I have no idea. I haven't talked to them. You haven't called your wife's parents I yet? I mean, you can't get a signal in this building. I've been in here talking to you. Well, call them, please, Nick, now. Hi. Should I know my wife's blood type? Okay, so look, this brings us into the top three. We are motoring through this. And at three, for me, seven. 
And for, th- for well, okay, this is interesting. Number three for me is Fight Club. Okay, so so we're, I, we're still not a million miles away because I had Fight Club at four. I think we're going to finish in a very very similar yes. place. I think this is this is much much more even than uh, than Nolan yeah, was. Yeah, it is. Okay, so let's do Fight Club since we're both now. So for me, Fight Club was four. For you, Fight Club was three. Uh, you go first. Fight Club is something that I discovered both late and early in my life. So that to the point where it had been parodied and it had been ripped off so many times that the first time I watched it, I knew what the twist was before it happened. And not because I knew the twist was that they're the same person or, you know, that's the basic way of interpreting the twist is they're the same person. But because it was done so much in horror films and, you know, there was a time around 1999 to early 2000s where there was loads of twists about someone being the same person or having a voice in their head. Like, A Beautiful Mind is similar to that. There's lots of that sort of stuff. Questioning reality was a big thing in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, And I've never massively, massively enjoyed Fight Club until maybe this year. And it immediately shot all the way up my list as one of my favourite Fincher films. I always liked it, but I never got it, I don't think. And actually, as I've gotten older and we'll get a bit personal on this podcast, why not? Strap in. Um, Since doing like therapy and things like that and looking into myself and being interested in psychology and the way that personality works, like looking into Jungian psychology. And I know enough stuff has been said about Fight Club and Jungian psychology until the cows come home. Like I'm not going to be the first nor the last person to make this comparison. But as soon as I was more clued in on things like that, there's an idea in Jungian psychology of the ego, which is the thing that you want to present to the world. And then there's the shadow self, which is the stuff that you learn from an early age that you're told not to do. So sexual stuff like, anything anything that would be deemed uh not worthy of public facing personality you put that into the shadow and good stuff can go into the shadow like your aggression can go into the shadow you can think that that's a bad thing to do but actually being aggressive can show that you are you know not to be taken seriously in a situation not to be aggressive not to lose your control but to be able to do it in a healthy way to integrate it anyway and i think there's a lot of exploration of that in fight club i think all of it is just that he Jack or the you know the the narrator is at a point in his life where he is completely separated from that side of his personality he's put it so far away that he's become this dull boring uh pushover of a person and in order to break that out his personality the uh, his personality splits almost and becomes a separate person and this time watching it with that in my mind made it so much clearer because it's not even trying to hide that it's doing that. The whole place takes place in an abandoned house. And when you see Tyler Durden, he's in the basement of the house. I mean, all the imagery for that is very obvious about what that could represent in terms of a psychological approach. And then there are things as well, like you have to destroy that part of yourself in order to be able to, like there needs to be the death of it in order to integrate it. Like all of that is there. And I just think it's, mind-bogglingly entertaining as well and knows exactly what it's doing there's a moment when brad pitt does the very well there's a lot of very famous speeches but the bit when he goes we all thought we were going to be growing up to be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars but we won't and you're like that's brad pitt saying this to jared leto so it's like he knows on another level what he's saying as well and 
there are things in it that stuck out to me more on this watch you know this is a few months ago now when it started to like really really click was like the moment when he's with his boss and you know when he beats himself up and we watch him do it for a long time i thought he was conscious of that i thought he was consciously doing it because he knew it'd get himself like he'd get his boss fired and i watched it this time and i realized no he doesn't know he doesn't he he thinks that his boss is really beating him up and that's what was scary about it it was he was so foreign it was the idea of that side of himself was so completely separate that he truly believes in that moment that his boss is beating him up and there's even a freeze frame on that moment when he says this reminded me of my first fight with tyler and then he smashes through a bunch of cabinets and so yeah it just meant a lot more to me this time around and i think that fincher's way of telling you that it's all in his head is from the very start like you have the the opening credits are going through a brain and then even later as well like in terms of meta humor again there's a bit when he goes can you think of anything and he goes still can't think of anything goes huh flashback humor like there's still there's a lot of that and obviously there's all the splicing in of the penises throughout the entire film all the bits of the flashes of tyler uh yeah i think it's really really good and i don't think there's anything i can say about it relating to the psychology of human beings and the duality of man that hasn't been said but i like all that stuff the only thing i would add to that is i think it's really funny i mean i think it's i think i think it's his, <laughs> i think it's his best comedy and i think it gets funnier and i and i i remember when again this is to do with an age thing when it came out it was the subject of some scandal there was you know a lot of worry yeah really? oh yes it's gonna you know it's gonna be terrible and then there, there were certain things that you know there, there were censorship issues both in, in, in the uk and in america and there was a lot of discussion about glamorizing violence and oh it's going to cause people to do this that and the other and then you see the film i think it's such an interesting thing as well because it's clear i mean the criticism of capitalism is another thing that's been talked about to death with fight club uh, that there isn't a shot in it without a starbucks cup in it um uh but i also love the fact that we meet um <laughs> what's his name in the film but it's it's played by yeah, Meatloaf. Well, hang on. Name the, 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 the second thing i was going to say is i think it's no Sorry. the second thing i was going to say is I think it's Meatloaf's best performance. And I'm a fan of Meatloaf anyway. Yeah. And I think Meatloaf in, in Rocky Horror is just great, although in the film obviously he's only in he's only in it very briefly. Um but I've I've got a real fondness for Meatloaf. And of course he he, you know, he came from theatre rather than rock music. I mean he was always a, a singer, but he he came from theatre and I think he has brilliant comic timing. And I think that whole thing about the portrayal of you know emasculated in inverted commas manhood and him playing a character who, you know, whose body is literally revolting against his sexuality, against his gender. And this is at a time when, you know, people, it wasn't perfectly fine for, for movies to do that kind of thing, to have those kind of discussions. And I think it's really interesting now, when you look at, I, one of the things that I think is, has been most positive about the last few years is that definitions of gender have really changed in the public perception. Um, I think now people are much more aware of the fluidity of gender than they were a few years ago. Or certainly uh, because I, I think that it's just people, I mean, it's not that it hasn't been like that for a long time, but people have kind of woken up to it. But one of the weird things about Fight Club is that that whole sense of, you know, your yourself and your body being in conflict is in, it's in Fight Club. 
and it is it's a sort of excoriating portrait of of manliness and maleness in crisis but at the same time that's what i was going to say is that i think that that moment bob's character that's his name bob it just literally came to me when i wasn't thinking about it bob's character in it it also to me feels like what you were just getting at which is the criticism of masculinity and that he's he's accepting that in order to get through this thing that is so you know devastatingly that's happened to him he's actually embracing femininity and sharing feelings and he's in this space where he's crying openly and and embracing people and he also in terms of metaphorically he has boobs so he has something of femininity literally on him and actually then later in the film he says i found something better and that turns out to be a fight club so he feels better after punching men in the face and that if that's not a criticism, but that, but I don't know that's what that's exactly is. what I mean about it's one of the funniest films, you know, because those, those things, because, <laughs> no, because those things are, it's, it's a, if you, even when you explain that, it's a gag and it's a very, it's a pointedly funny gag, but it's a gag with a point. It is about, it is about deconstructing masculinity and deconstructing that gender identity thing. And, 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 and in the end, absolutely scathingly laughing at the idea of the constructed macho persona but and getting brad, and getting pitt, brad pitt to play, to play it ultimate I know, man. I know. Just, and then brad pitt himself looks at an underwear uh adver- advertisement at one point that he would be on and probably has been on something like that and just says is that what a man looks like and is just constantly like this weird uh conflict with what he's saying and, and who yeah, he is yeah yeah but it's but all that stuff is funny and then at the end you know when the when the thing happens that's funny as well and you and you're actually thinking i can't i actually can't but this it's so wrong that this is funny it's so completely wrong and of course actually the whole thing about the way in which it's done is i mean i think anybody who takes the anybody who takes that end literally has not is not watching the film um but but it is you know it is that that kind of that you know the glorious anarchy of comedy which is that you say the unspeakable thing and you make some and you make it and you make it funny um so yeah so and that also i think helena bottom carter is absolutely brilliant in that movie i mean i'm a huge helena bottom carter fan anyway i think it's my favorite performance from yeah her. i think it's i mean it's certainly the most daring thing that she's done but i mean i just think she's she's i mean you can imagine being david fincher going this film is really out there it's really we need somebody who's really is helena bottom carter busy you know it's <laughs> <laughs> here's i'll say one more thing about fight club that I noticed this time that I really appreciated, which was that Tyler Durden, I think, demonstrates the parts of the narrator's, you know, uh, resentments throughout the film as well. Like things that you don't need to say, but you learn about the character if you pay enough attention. And I think he's extremely angry at his dad. I think he's so devastated that is that he didn't have a father when he was young and there's moments in it when jack the narrator says oh you know my father left when i was young i didn't really know my father like he just sort of brushes it off but tyler tyler's really angry at his dad like he's just got this thing throughout the entire movie about how much he hates him and there's even a speech very again another very famous speech where he says something like our fathers were models for gods our, our fathers were our models for god and if God abandoned 
if God abandoned, if our fathers abandoned us, what does that tell you about God? Like he's constantly just like furious at his dad and he's blaming everything on him, but they never address it. It's just like sprinkled in. And I think that's really good character work that they know exactly where Tyler's coming from the entire time. And it's just this petty little thing that he hasn't worked out, that he's really angry at his dad. What do you want me to do? You just want me to hit you? Come on, do me just one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know. Never been in a fight. You? No, but that, that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? I don't want to die without any scars. So come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Oh, God. This is crazy. You should go crazy. Let her rip. Hey, I don't know about this. I don't either, but who gives a shit? No one's watching. What do you care? Wait, what? This is crazy. You want me to hit you? That's right. What, like in the <laughs> face? <laughs> Surprise me. This is so fucking stupid. Into the top two. So my number two is Zodiac. You had Zodiac at number... I had Zodiac at number five. Okay, what's your number two? My number two is seven. Okay, fine. So I had uh, seven at number three. So I'm also do- so pleased with what the number one is. Of yeah, course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> okay, so let's do let's do Zodiac first. Um, I'll go first on this. The reason I love Zodiac is because it's it's that thing about it's it's the anti procedural procedural. Um, it's a it's a film that it, that is about procedure. And yet, it isn't about procedure. Um, it, it, you get the sense because because of the whole way of the, the kind of the mythology of the Zodiac case, um, which, as we know, you know, had made its way into the movies even before the case was you know anywhere near being sort of finished. And of course, you know, I'm a huge fan of William Peter Blatty's uh, Legion, and the Gemini killer in Legion is thought to you know to take a, a, some inspiration from. The Zodiac case. But the thing about the film of Zodiac is it's not about that. It's about everything else. So it's a procedural that is actually about procedure. But at the same time, it is not about procedure. It is about everything else. And I think what's so clever about it is that it's it is it's like watching a movie deconstruct itself in front of you. It's like watching something actually stand there and deconstruct movie genres whilst it's telling its story. And it does it so deceptively that you have no awareness of the fact that it's doing it. I think it's a really, a really What's clever... Like, what springs to mind when you, when you think about that? When you think about it deconstructing movie genres whilst telling you its own story, what's, what, what's springing to your, to your mind in, in Zodiac for that? I mean, like, for example, you think from the, from the title of the film and the, and the subject matter of the film that it's going to be a film about the Zodiac, okay? You think it's going to be, you know, the Zodiac is a uh, real-life killer and and we all know about the mythology of this, and it isn't. And then you think, okay, well, what it's going to be about is it's going to be about the case for hunting down the Zodiac. And, 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 you know, narratively, that is what it's about. It's about this case going cold and then not being let go. And But it isn't about that either. And then there's a moment when the case kind of gets solved so incidentally that you almost don't notice that it's happened and then the film keeps going and it's like the film is going that's not what this what this is about and it's all done it's visually beautiful and because one of the things that Fincher really understands you know Brian De Palma always says I'm the only Hitchcockian director 
and you go well the, the, being hitchcockian is not just to do with you know having shots that do this and shots hitchcockian is is a kind of it's to do with attention it's not just a canted angle <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it, it's but it's to do with um with tension in the narrative and i think that I think that Zodiac is a brilliant example of of the tension is not in solving the crime. The tension is not in the crime. The tension is in the narrative, which which is always one step ahead of you. I've seen Zodiac four times now, and every time I forget which way it goes and at which point. There's a point about two-thirds through Zodiac when the film seems to have stopped. I mean, the film literally seems to have finished, and yet... The central character, one of the central characters, they're in Acentria, is so obsessed that it kind of goes, oh, all right, and then it kind of gets up and, and carries on going. Yeah, I think so, that it's it knows that you're going into it being like, okay, this is a very famously unsolved case. So it could be anyone. And so from the beginning, am I right in saying that a lot of the murders in the first hour or so of the film are filmmaking interpretations of real police files I, I, I as far as i understand yes it is it is factually very very on the money and usually when that happens there's a horrible element of exploitation in it you know and i mean we've seen enough serial killer movies you know in, particularly in, in, in the in recent years as it happens which do that kind of you know true this is like actually being at the crime yes and yet the really impressive thing about Zodiac for me is that that's not the point. Well, it's almost as if it's almost as if they've gone to such trouble to make sure that all the frame, you know, this thing about, I don't know whether you've, you've ever watched the crown on television, but one of the things about the crown that they cost like a million an issue, a million an episode. And one of the things they do is that they have all this kind of historical research. Obviously all the sort of personal conversations are made up, but the actual factual stuff has to be right. So they go and get the documents. So when the queen is signing documents, they make sure that they've seen the actual documents and the stuff that she's got in front of her is a, is a proper replica of the proper documents that she properly could be signing so that no historian could go oh well that's the wrong quill or that's the wrong thing but but actually the story is about the royal family you know and their interactions in the case of zodiac it's like they've got the they've gone to the trouble of putting all the structure framework in exactly the right place and organizing all the furniture and organizing all the details and then going okay anyway the film is you know, and then going yeah off, yeah I yeah, yeah i know exactly I, what you mean like, I, I love that it starts out with this murder it's almost like a opening scene like before before the credits hit in a tv show or something it's like shows you one zodiac killing and it's the girl who suggests that they go somewhere quieter and then is nervous when she sees somebody there i think she even goes like oh oh no or something like that and then when he drives away and comes back she's like she knows what is kind of going to happen and there's lots of implication in the film that or lots of hinting that zodiac could be anyone and it almost at first it's like oh is, she, is it going to be that she's the killer or no 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 she knows what's going to going on oh she's dead now what so what was that about like, there's a very strange like mood setter at the beginning where he's sort of telling you look out for anything in this because i'm going to be playing with you constantly about who or what is but, going okay, on but that scene is particularly interesting because on the one hand it's got all the problems of oh my god is this going to be an exploitative drama and on the other hand, it's got exactly that thing of, it's not about that. You know, so you come out of that scene and you're com you're completely confused. 
you come out, you literally come out of it like I, I, I because it also and again this seems like a weird thing there's almost a comedic thing happening in that there's almost a comedic thing happening in the going away and the coming back which is really unsettling really really unsettling and i i like that as well because i know that what fincher likes about serial killer stuff is that there's a performance to this he, and we'll discuss this more when we talk about seven but when people are doing this they're doing it because they like it and they're not doing it for any other reason and all of all of fincher's serial killer characters are all and all actually all of his characters that are passionate about something they are doing it because they like it. And he knows that when he has that car drive away, he knows that he's creating tension in somebody. So when he comes back, he knows it's going to be even more, they're going to be even more frightened because they thought they were escaping danger, but they aren't. Sergeant Mullenix. Sergeant Paul Avery from the San Francisco Chronicle. I just want to check if you got an unsolved firearm-related homicide on Christmas and maybe one on July 4th. Shit. You guys got one too. Confirmed. VPD, they confirmed the shootings. Al's on the phone of the examiner. They got the same letter with a different code. Also, the Times Herald. Christmas, two teenagers on Lover's Lane, both the OA. David Faraday and Betty Jensen. July 4th, Darlene Farron and Michael Mig... I think it's Mayhew. Anyway, he lived. She didn't. The murder weapon? Ballistics. Everything he said in the letters match. I mean, I think the Times Herald's going to go on that. The examiner's going, but won't go front page. I say, let's go front page. If he kills 12 people, it's not our fault. Robert, we need the car too. Oh. Oh. You're not finished? No, I'm finished, Carol. I'm finished. Terry's still here. Really? The first edition is off the floor in 10, Charles. Uh, give us a sec. Okay, replate. We'll go on page, page four. What do you say, 20 bucks, whoever cracks the psycho's name? He won't give his name. Morty's? Anyone? Where I'm heading. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Jack, since you've, since you've brought it up, so now let's do seven because we, I think the, the the joy of this is we're both on the same page at, at number one. So seven. She want to go first or me go first? I watched it again last night, uh, so it's very fresh in my head. And okay. I I don't know how many times I've seen seven. I it's it's 
it's got to the point now where it's it's definitely you know in the 20 somethings if not more because i've i've probably just had it through most of my life and always thrown it on i think it's it is a work of genius i don't think there's a foot wrong in the whole film i genuinely don't even know where to begin talking about it because i just think it is an out and out masterpiece it knows exactly what it's doing the entire time it has you in the palm of its hands even again it has that meta cinema thing and i noticed it more this time where morgan freeman literally says at one point you know there's going to be no satisfying conclusion to this you know that like he's not he's just a man it's not going to be anything he's not a monster and then the film gives you one of the most satisfying conclusions so it it almost got it almost like reaches out to you and goes just settle your expectations all right and then it blows your expectations away with that amazing final scene again that's been parodied to hell but everyone's so good in it it sets it all up beautifully no one sees it coming who hasn't seen it before it is such a brilliant combination of crime horror thriller the performances are great it all makes sense i think it was and correct me if i'm wrong it felt like the beginning of movies like this where the the villain is making a point like he's making a larger artistic dramatic point about something and that is absolutely like you can see the knock-on effect with other movies that have come after it like the joker like him you know we're not so different you and i that type of stuff feels like it's all started from here and i love the behind the scenes story that i'm sure you know that brad pitt said he wouldn't do it if they didn't have the ending the way that it was because they were planning on changing it because they thought it was too uh too gross and too gruesome and too um uh, you know too what's, not fun enough. too pessimistic yeah too pessimistic so they were going to change it to like um a, the dog's head or something like that they were just going to change it to lots of different stuff and brad pitt was accidentally sent the script where it was Gwyneth's head <laughs> and they uh he's like i'm not doing it unless this is the ending so the reason why it all happened the way it happened is because of complete circumstance that he was as powerful as he was at the time that he was I just, yeah, I just, I think it's, it's perfect in in its genre. It cannot be replicated. Well, of course, course, the most perfect thing is that you never see what it is anyway. And so the joy of it, the joy of it is it could be whatever they want it to be. And that's the, that's the real genius is, you know, exactly what it is, but they don't show it to you because you don't have to. And they've shown you so much stuff throughout the entire film that there's constantly a tension that you're going to see Gwyneth Paltrow's horrible, disfigured, decapitated head. But you, but, but, but you don't, you know, and that's the, I I don't know. I think, I think that's, it's really, really clever that you don't ever, you know, you just, it plays on his reaction. So the, the, the two things I I'd like to say about it is I saw it when it first came out again, I'm a lot older than you. And I think it's possible to forget this now. I don't know what, I don't know, you know, what the effect, I was really shocked by how nasty it is. I mean, I'm a you know a hardened horror fan, but I was really shocked. I mean, the you know the knife attachment was is one of the most grotesque things. Um, I think to some extent 
because you know what came in the wake of it i mean you know you mentioned joker the the elephant in the room here is the saw movies i mean you know jigsaw kind of all that sort of i'm here to prove to you them you know the moral grossness of the world you go, yeah fine and and, and and i've i've seen all the saw movies and fine but i'm not getting the point <laughs> well the point it, it it really is isn't it it i I was absolutely shocked when I first saw Seven because the nastiness of the of of the crimes I mean the just the sheer although what you see is to some extent quite fleeting I mean you do see graphic stuff but it's also kind you of do. fleetingly graphic you do no I know but it's also kind of it but it's shocking it's genuinely shocking and horrible because the thought of it is so horrible the act the proper you know genuine thought of it and the the nastiness and what and that's what i mean about like david fincher's criticism of people who enjoy this stuff because i think morgan freeman from the beginning of that film almost feels like he's above this sort of situation the grossness of it and the and the the exploitative nature of it and how horrible he thinks it all is. He's like above it and he doesn't like it. And even throughout the film, like the moment when they're about to go into uh, Sloth's uh, crime scene, which is a particularly horrible one, the SWAT team are about to break down that door and you just hear Morgan Freeman say, they love this. And then you watch them burst in and they go, move, 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 down on the floor, do this, do that. And you can see how much they're enjoying the adrenaline of it. But then the, the end of the film is that he chooses to stay there and do it because he's he's right. He He's part of it. He loves it as well. The other thing that, again, this is just to do with seeing it when it first came out, which is a long time ago now. Um, there was a lot of stuff about what print of it you saw, whether you saw a silver retained print or not. And the print that we got shown uh, in the preview screening was indeed one of the silver retention prints in which the blacks were very black. Now, Cinema technology has moved on so much nowadays that that seems like less of a less of an issue. But it was definitely true that when Seven first came out, there were the prints of it that were really expensive to produce, um, and there was, you know, it was done with this with this silver retention process, which meant that the the black the the blackness of the screen was jet black and the idea was that it created the the impression that you were peering through a broken frame into somebody else's world almost and the fincher worked so hard on getting that right but only a certain number of the prints for a fairly small number were processed with the silver retention process which double what and did all this stuff so it looked more remarkable in some prints than it did in others. And then when the film came to DVD and Blu-ray, uh, Fincher was able to kind of correct it so that it looked more... So it was one of the weird cases when a film actually came out on disc and home viewing you know, formats in which it might be the first time you got to see the film the way the director intended you to see it, which, again, I know this doesn't sound like a big deal now, but back then... I remember writing a piece about this for Sight and Sound and going, this is really unusual. The whole idea that you can control what the image looks like in a digital version of it. 
but there are prints, you know, you might have gone to see it at the Barnet Odeon and it was an ordinary, you know, an unspecial print that had run through a projector 50 times and was a bit crummy around the edges. Yeah, that's Where, just like the, the colour correction in the grade is so, such a m- normal part of the process now. You yes, can actually it, even record you, things now on cameras where you can change the settings after the fact, whereas yeah. back then that was absolutely not an option. But back then it was literally to do with the prints. It was to do with there was only a small number of the prints that were actually looked like what the film should look like. So there was, I mean, I, there was this, I, there was like discussions about, like I said, this is a long time ago. This is before the internet, okay? People would have discussions about which print was playing where. I mean, that's uh, how like- that's how mad it was. And and I know what, because the, because film buffs knew that they wanted to see the they one wanted to see Fincher. the right print, yeah. And yeah. it was and, and there weren't that many of them because they were expensive to produce. I know this now sounds like you know hooey and baloney, but believe no, me, no, it doesn't. It sounds very interesting. Like what it, a different way of doing it. Like that would never happen now. No, it wouldn't. And it was a thing. It was like a, oh god, which, which screening were you at? Oh, you were at that preview screening. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, that preview screening. Well, it kind of sh- reminds me actually of like when Tarantino released Hateful Eight. And there was only a certain yeah, which amount version of, of it that would show see? it on seventy mil. Yeah, exactly. So it was a f- the format of it was as much of an issue as. There, and I so from a, just the point of view of looking at the film and it being an unbelievable film to look at as a piece of as a physical creation of an artwork, it it, it had so much work had gone into it, and then it was so nasty, and then. The music was remarkable. I mean, the way in which the soundtrack, you know, was... I mean, I, I, I think for many people that will have been the first time they ever heard, you know, Bowie's, uh, you know, Filthy Message, and, 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 and quite extraordinary. And then... The Nine the Inch ho- Nails song as well over the opening titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the fact that at the end of it, when they go out into the bright sunlight and you literally feel like you're being dazzled by that last sequence which is where the thing the thing the thing happens <laughs> and you, and everyone's kind of almost going like that because the cinema's been so dark for so long Do you know some of the like beautiful like little easter eggs i'm sure you know loads of them but like all those poles or the, the the in the final desert scene they're all shaped like sevens the sevens everywhere oh no I, I, so that, good. Had, that hadn't occurred to me that is brilliant and then finally um because we should raise this it's the kevin spacey issue um, you know, obviously Kevin Spacey is persona non grata now as a result of stuff that's emerged about his personal life. And people always ask, you know, the question about, well, what does that then do to the art? I'll tell you what it does to this particular piece of art. Yeah. What it does for me... It a bit, doesn't it? No, but no. I was going to say what it does is I completely forgot about it while watching the film again. Because the film is... Right, right, Although right. I, I, I had it in my mind, you know, I wonder how this looks now. Because I don't think I've seen a Kevin Spacey feature film since all this stuff broke. Um, Baby Driver, I think, was the last thing I saw him in, which was, which was before all these stories broke. And I was going back to watch Seven because I haven't seen it for a long time. And I remember thinking... I must ask myself that question about, you know, I never thought about it once. I never thought about it once. I just watched the film. And and because the filmmaking is so extraordinary that you just, you go, okay, it, the film is the film is the film is the film. I don't actually think about that being Kevin Spacey any more than I think about that being Brad Pitt and that being Morgan Freeman. I don't think there's a bit of Thelma and Louise, there's a bit of um, Shawshank Redemption, and there's that creepy bloke. I just I just think of them as the characters in the film. 
So do I. Yeah, it's at that point actually, and and this is the first time on a slightly different note, but still to do with who's playing them. It's the first time I didn't really like Detective David Mills very much. I think I've been blinded by the Brad Pittiness for a while, but I watched it this time and I was like, oh, he's a bit annoying, isn't he? Like, he's a bit like you got a like, young peppy energy. He probably. He, he, it's me and you, isn't it? Like you're Morgan Freeman and I'm Brad Pitt. <laughs> I'll take oh, that. Oh god, he's annoying. I'll take that. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought all you did was kill innocent people. Innocent? Is that supposed to be funny? An obese man? A disgusting man who could barely stand up? A man who, if you saw him on the street, you'd point him out to your friends so that they could join you in mocking him? A man who, if you saw him while you were eating, you wouldn't be able to finish your meal? And after him, I picked the lawyer, and you both must have secretly been thanking me for that one. This is a man who dedicated his life to making money by lying with every breath that he could muster to keeping murderers and rapists on the streets. Murderers. A woman. Murderers, John, like a yourself. A woman. So ugly on the inside that she couldn't bear to go on living if she couldn't be beautiful on the outside. A, a drug dealer, a, a drug dealing pederast, actually. And let's not forget the disease-spreading whore. Only in a world this shitty could you even try to say these were innocent people and keep a straight face. All right, Jack. So, look, that brings us to the, the number one spot, and we're on the same page for both of us. Of course we are. It's the, well, you say, of course we are. I, you know, I'm slightly surprised, but I'm very pleased. So you go first. Why the social network? The Social Network is tied for my favourite film of all time, alongside Back to the Future. Um, it's a film that I saw that I feel like changed my life in some ways. Like I watched it and I just got it instantly. And I remember, because I was in uni at the time when it came out, not many other people around me like knew why I loved it so much. There's something I've spoken about quite a lot um, to do with why I think it's so great. And it's, it's, it's zooming in on a scene and why I think all of the social network works can be seen in this one particular scene. And it doesn't feel particularly significant. It's not one of the scenes that you'd be like looking up online. It's not Andrew Garfield's big rant. It's not none of the monologues. It's not the it's raining outside scene. It's nothing like that. It's just a scene where Mark and Eduardo go back to the dorm room and Mark goes over to the fridge and gets out a beer for himself. And Eduardo goes over and gets out two beers and that's not ever discussed in the in the whole scene and they're just chatting about something else they're still chatting about facebook or whatever it is but the dynamic there just tells you everything about what's going on in this film i'm out for me and i'm looking out for both of us and it's just one of those things that's never discussed and i think that that is just pitch perfect directing and figuring out how to elevate something it's why i think chicago 7 and molly's game to an extent don't on elevated films is because I've seen somebody say this, this is not my thing, but I think it's perfect that Aaron Sorkin is too good of a writer to be working with Aaron Sorkin as a director. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, agree I, think with that. That, I agree with that. Of course. Yeah. He's, I mean, David Fincher, I think went through this script with a fine tooth, tooth comb and figured out exactly what every single line was about, what the intention was. He is known for being a specific director and you can see in the behind the scenes footage of the social network, how they created new ways of shooting this film. It was shot on red, which I think is digital. I'm pretty certain it is a digital only format. And they shot things like side by side so they could like have an impossible camera move, go between two cameras on one of the opening sequences. 
It's the fact that before they made it, the script was about 150 pages or something like that. And David Fincher was like, this is a two-hour film. And the studio were like, we need you to cut some pages off this. And he was like, I'm not going to do that because I think it's perfect as it is. I'm going to have Aaron Sorkin read it end to end. and I'm going to time it. And that's going to tell you how long the film is going to be. And it was exactly two hours on the dot. And the film is two hours on the dot. And I have the screenplay. Hang on. (laughs) I have the screenplay right here <laughs> Very good. and I've read it and it is basically the film and you that's might great. be listening to this being like of course it is it's a script it's that's not the way it works that's not the way it works a lot of the time what's written in a script doesn't get adapted the way it is things feel different when you get them on their feet but this film is basically word for word the film that Fincher has made and it's it's it blows my mind it honestly every time i watch it i it just it just is perfect it's a perfect film one thing i'll say now is that the twin cgi hasn't held up as much as you might think it might if you watch it now and you really look at it but that doesn't really matter. Okay, Who well, cares? I, right, well, I, okay, so... so please, I, please take it away. No, so i just like to... I mean, I agree with everything you said. Uh, I think the three things are important. Firstly, since you just raised it, the twin CGI, for me, was a perfect example of technology in, the, in being used in the service of the story because I didn't know who Army Hammer was and I didn't know it wasn't yeah, two yeah, yeah. people. I thought it was two people. So you wouldn't people. be looking for it before it was I Army wasn't Hammer. looking for it. I thought it was two people and then somebody went, it, no, it's not. And I went, what do you... Well, I mean, bear in mind, Dead Ringers had already happened some years before and had demonstrated that you could do this. But in Dead Ringers, I knew there was only one Jeremy Irons. I didn't know how many Army Hammers There's there were. There's only one I'd Jeremy get, Irons. You know, you, but that's it. So, I, so, so when I was watching Dead Ringers, which was amazing, I mean, it's just like, oh my God, that's really amazing. And I re- was watching, it never occurred to me that it wasn't t- it wasn't two people. It never occurred to me that it was a doubled up army hammer. Secondly, there's the weird bit suddenly halfway through when you're in the middle of a rowing race. And the, oh, and the film so literally good. literally goes, what? It, yeah. It's so bizarre. Um, Set to the Hall of the Mountain King. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing is, as being the person that I am who has a fundamental distrust of Facebook, um, it managed to engross and entertain me. It's about- aged well, hasn't it? Yeah, it managed to engross and entertain me about a subject about which I could care less. And I thought that was really good because I've always said the the mark of a great documentary is a film that can that can interest you and educate you about a subject that you don't know or, or care about before you watch the film. And I think although... Well, I think it's because The Social Network is dealing with like classic, dramatic, Shakespearean themes it's like yeah. about friendship no, and betrayal yes, and business it's yeah it's not a documentary it is it is about those things but it's also i mean obviously there are there are inventions in terms of everything that happens between him and the relationship with his girl you know there it there is clear there is clear invention um but it doesn't matter because it, the story isn't it but i i tell you the th- the thing that i think and i you know i love the dialogue i love jesse eisenberg i mean in a way the issue is that the, I don't know that Jesse Eisenberg has ever been that good again because I don't know that Jesse Eisenberg has ever been cast that perfectly again. That kind of he was great in Zombieland and he was great in this. Yeah, but he's it's just the perfect role. But the the thing that really struck home for me was some time ago 
somebody, my son showed me a, a, a video on, uh, on the internet of, um, of a speech that uh, Zuckerberg, the real Zuckerberg gave, in which, and you'll know this, he, 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 he famously slipped he was talking about how people think that Facebook, the Facebook, w- w- was was run in a way that was kind of, you know, all algorithmic and didn't, you know, didn't really have any heart or compassion. And he said, "Look, look, I understand, I understand. I was, am human." And he, <gasps> and it was, it was this. Is, I haven't seen that. That's so it's, funny. It's a, it's a glitch, a glitch in the matrix, you know, and <laughs> and because because of you know. Because of the, because of because of what I what I understood from the character in in Social Network, I just laughed for a- yeah. ages about that. I used to be human, <laughs> so it's it's you know it's just that thing about um it t- it told me a story that I thought I mean I remember thinking this is a story the in- the invention of fucking Facebook people sitting I mean because that was the- it like, I remember people being like the Facebook film the- I know like, and like, I mean nah, you know you and I talked about hackers I know you're not a fan of hackers but I love hackers and one of the reasons it was, was fine like, yeah but one of the reasons I loved it was it was like hackers what it's a film about people doing this and then it wasn't and in the same way social network what it's a film about people doing that and it wasn't and also that uh, I think Garfield is brilliant I think Andrew Garfield is yeah, brilliant but the, but I know the- he won a Kermie award didn't he he did well d- yes he did well done Jack That's, I'm, I'm amazed that you yeah, um, yeah, yes, he did. Um, I know my history. Yeah, well, well, um, and I am indeed history. Um, uh, but the <laughs> just that thing about to have a film in which the central character is so fundamentally unlikable, and yet the drama makes you interested in and invested in what happens to him. And I think it is a really good example of that. You don't have to be likable. The character does not have to be likable. The character has to be interesting, and it's the, it's it, yeah, it, and it's also the way that it's told to you as well. Because David yeah. Fincher knows how to to give you this story, and it's just it's. I, I want to talk about specific stuff like the opening, not the opening, but one of the opening sequences in it when they're making face mash and. It's just a bunch of guys. He's just tipping away on his his uh, keyboard. There's a couple of guys getting stoned behind him, and they infiltrate these high, you know, stakes parties within college that they're not invited to, but they find a way to infiltrate them through making these uh, these websites and then control their evenings and control their social. And that's exactly what the film is about. Yeah, it's just captured in this little moment where it's intercutting between him creating face mash and these sexy college parties. And he manages to control all of it from his bedroom. And it's just like, there you go. That's the film. That's what he's doing. That's what the whole conclusion is going to be. And there's, there's also, you know, there are, there, there are great things that, that thing about, you know, the internet being written in, you know, in, in ink or whatever it is about the, the idea that it, it's not ephemera. This is something that he's going to stay around for ages. Funnily enough. You write your snide shit from a bedroom, from a dark room, because that's what the angry do these days. But I, I remember watching, and this seems like a strange connection, watching uh, Notting Hill in which the mo- one of the best bits in Notting Hill is the bit when Julia Roberts says he says oh, but it's it's you know she's got they've got these pictures it's all right it'll be gone and she says no they won't no they won't they will be there forever and that that idea about right you know about stuff being there for about the the, the permanence of transience I think is really brilliantly done and 
Plus, it's really funny. Let's talk about the uh, amazing soundtrack as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who I... I mean, they thankfully won the Oscar for it because this film, I think, in a, now, in a rare case, snubbed. in a rare case of the Oscars <laughs> getting it right. Yeah, um, well, in a, in an Oscars where they got it very wrong and didn't give David Fincher best director, and they didn't give him who did best win best picture. Who did win best director? Best director was Tom Hooper, and The King's Speech also won best picture. Oh, good lord! I forgot. Oh, wow, man. that's that's a decision what that hasn't aged boring well. Boring choices. I know, right? <laughs> right. The director of Cats beat out David Fincher at the Oscars for The Social Network. Awful, Jack. That Awful. is that is shocking. I know. Yeah. Uh, but the score by, Atti- by uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, I think, is a genre shifting. And I mean movie soundtracks, like in general, like shifted the way that soundtracks were made after The Social Network. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. Hans Zimmer's also got something to do with that. But there's no way that we would have had the amazing, bizarre tips and clicks and beeps that we got in uh, Into the Spider-Verse by Daniel Pemberton if it wasn't for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross doing it for The Social Network, no, like the way that that score was made is oh, it's so different from anything else you'd ever heard before it. And it's just also, just on a personal note, a note, perfect to do your work to. You feel like you're doing something important when you listen to that soundtrack and you're working on something that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really pumps you up. You signed the papers. You set me up. You're going to blame me because you were the business head of the company and you made a bad business deal with your own company. This is going to be like I'm not a part of Facebook. It won't be like you're not a part of Facebook. You're not a part of Facebook. My name's on the masthead. You might want to check again. It's because I froze the account? You think we were going to let you parade around in your ridiculous suits pretending you were running this company? Sorry! My Prada's at the cleaners! Along with my hoodie and my fuck you flip-flops, you pretentious douchebag! Security's here. You'll be leaving now? I'm not signing those papers. We will get the signature. Tell me this isn't about me getting into the Phoenix. You, you did it. I knew you did it. You planted that story about the chicken. I didn't plant the story about the chicken. What's he talking about? You had me accused of animal cruelty. Seriously, what the hell's the chicken? And I'll bet what you hated the most is that they identified me as a co-founder of Facebook, which I am. You better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for 30%. I'm coming back for everything. It's. I mean, it is an interesting thing. I had. I. I had completely forgotten that. Uh, that's okay. I'm just going to play you this, Jack. I'm going to play you this down the phone. Okay. So hang on. But it is going to bother you because you're human, and and I was human. I am human. But I was just referring. To- you hear that? Oh my god! That is so bizarre. Isn't, isn't it great? I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. Pl- I'm gonna play it to you again because it's just. It's just. It's the glitch in the Matrix moment. Here we go. The voice of Mark Zuckerberg. But it is going to bother you because you're human, and and I was human. I am human, but I was just referring to myself in the past. Oh my god! There we go. And I, I was you. I am human. <laughs> and and the point is that that would not have meant anything to me had I not seen Social Network because because you know so. And what you're saying about the clicks and bumps of the things, it's almost like the soundtrack knows that. Yeah, yeah. So th- th- this is actually one of the things that's different in the script. I'll try and get the exact wording, actually. Is that in the beginning, after they have that big argument in the bar, and then when she leaves, um, and then we have the beautiful opening title sequence of him going back to Harvard, and all that emotion that's in his m- head is just not, you know, is not coming out. He's just jogging back to his to his uh, 
to his apartment, to his dorms. In the movie, it's this single piano sound, very famous, dun, 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 but with like a long groaning underneath all of it. In the movie, in, in the script, I'm pretty sure it says something about like, la- here we go. Uh, I'm pretty sure it says something about loud thumping music. And that was supposed to be what it was. Oh, hang on. Uh, pulsing into Paul Young's love of the common people crashes in. That's very different, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things that Fincher was like, no, I'm going to... I'm going to make it better than that. <laughs> what, what's, what's lovely is not even love of the common people, but Paul Young's love of the common people. <laughs> and also, isn't it interesting as well that at the end of the movie, Erica Albright is on Facebook. And that is just, it's just very interesting to me that the movie finishes in a place where like, he's kind of won. Like he's kind of, he's got her on the thing that he's created but he's also alone and that doesn't and, and gains nothing from that. Is there anything else we can say about the social network that hasn't been said? It's amazing. It's a masterpiece. It's everybody's favorite film of the 2010s. Everyone knows now how good it is. So look, let's do let's do a rundown um, from 10 to 1 of our uh, our ordering. So for me, number 10, Benjamin Button. Alien 3 by default because I haven't seen it. Uh, number 9 for me, Alien 3. Panic Room. Number eight, The Game. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Number seven, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The Game. Number six, Panic Room. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Number five, Gone Girl. Zodiac. Number four, Fight Club. Gone Girl. Number three, Seven. Fight Club. Number two, Zodiac. Seven <laughs> and number one social network. The social network. You know, it's Jack. It is. It's actually surprising how much that's that's measured up. And we are. Com- it's kind of lined up well, isn't it? It has, and we are from completely different generations. You are from the. You are a digital native, and I am a. You know, whatever they call it, a digital incomer or whatever it is. We are from. We are literally from different generations, and yet we have ordered those films in very, very similar ways. Which I think says... I was so nervous that you were going to have some sort of... Yeah, like I say, Dark Knight Rises moment again, where you're like, I think Curious Stop Cases... Stop referring to three. it as a I Dark genuinely... Knight Rises moment. You know, <laughs> I, have to tell, I have to tell you this. Um, my, my son, who you know, was... Oh, was yeah, he messaging like, me about that. Did he? Oh, okay, I didn't know that. I was here in the... He was in the kitchen, and we were having the thing, and I came out, and I hadn't realised he was next door. He'd been... And he, he, he said... Did you say what I think you just said? And I went, yeah. what? And he went, about that. I went, oh, you heard that? He went, yeah. And he was <laughs> genuinely shocked. He was like genuinely shocked. I think a lot of people who listened to that were shocked that you put The Dark Knight last in that trilogy. I think that is a bizarre yeah. stance the, to the take. Dif- the difference is, Jack, a lot of people that listen to it aren't my son. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, I, I don't so, mind. I mean, I don't mind anyone being appalled, but he's my son. <laughs> You'll never forget the look on his face oh, when you never, find out will, that you put the Dark Knight last. I will never forget the look on his face. It was... <laughs> he texted me about it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and in a way that... Clearly kind of, very rattled. That kind of makes perfect sense, you know. <laughs> Oi! I said, you can come stay with me anytime you want. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, well, Jack, Jack, that was really good. That was really good fun. We've run over. We've gone. We've gone longer than we should have done. But I, I think it was. I think it was. I think it worked out well. And we've uh, kept people company yeah, in these and, trying times. And I'm just. I'm sorry, just because uh, I, I think it's so perfect. I'm just going to, to to sign off by saying, okay, if you've enjoyed this podcast, thanks very much for listening. You know, remember to subscribe, remember to do all the things that none, none of us ever knew about. Send before, us a tweet. Before let, any us of us and, let us know what yeah. you want us to discuss if there's anything. Exactly. Um, uh, I'd say go to the Facebook page, but I don't have one. Or if I do, I don't Neither understand do I. what it is. Well, there if we I do, go. I don't go on it. Don't understand what it is, how it works, why it works, or anything like that. Um, but I'm sure it's all fabulous. Um, and go to our Patreon page. Uh, that's nice. That's gonna, it's got a video of me and Jack doing this. And uh, I'm going to leave you with but this. It is going to bother you because you're human. And, and I was human. I am human. But I was just really <laughs> 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 oh. oh, it's the gift that keeps giving. So there we are. That was me and Jack Howard counting down our top 10 David Fincher movies in order. As I said, if you missed the first half of this podcast, don't worry. All the podcasts are available for you to download and listen to at any time. Thanks for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, remember to tell your friends, and remember to keep watching the skies. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you